0: This is How to Reach the West Again, a podcast that explores what it will take to have a fresh missionary encounter with Western culture. I'm your host, Brandon O'Brien. Our time together each week begins with an explanation from Tim Keller about one of six essential elements of a missionary encounter. After that, we'll have conversations with scholars and practitioners of various sorts who study these things and do them in diverse contexts throughout Europe and North America. Think of Dr. Keller's presentation as a pass over difficult terrain from a relatively high altitude, and each of our guests as guides at regional airports who can show us what the features we saw from the air look like on the ground. This week, we're getting the lay of the land, Tim Keller defines what he means by missionary encounter, and identifies the biggest obstacles we face in our pursuit of it in this cultural moment. Next, we hear from Dr. Stefan Poss, a missiologist in Amsterdam who proposes a missional spirituality that can sustain a missionary encounter. And last but not least, Hiotas Kentarsis from Athens reminds us of the importance of paying close attention to our context to the ways our generalizations about Western culture play out in our own cities and neighborhoods. This is great stuff. Without further ado, Tim Keller.
1: How to reach the West again. For 30 years we've been told that Western society is becoming post-Christian and that the church must adapt to a changing culture in order to remain relevant. Despite this gloomy prediction, Christianity has displayed remarkable staying power. There are parts of North America where substantial numbers of people still hold traditional religious and moral beliefs. While mainline churches have declined, evangelical churches largely have not. It might be more accurate, though, to say that instead of being thoroughly post-Christian, America today is marked by spotty Christendom in many places. But the overall decline of Christian influence in the West is inarguable. Every generation is becoming less religious and less Christian. More than two-thirds of the churches in the United States have plateaued or are in decline. While religion was broadly seen as a social good, or at least benign, increasing numbers of people now see the church as bad for people and a major obstacle to social progress. Traditional Christian beliefs about sexuality and gender are being viewed as dangerous and restrictive of people's basic civil rights. Instead of wringing our hands over the loss of cultural influence in Western culture, this decline should prompt us to examine ourselves, pray, and work toward a new missionary engagement with Western culture. We have to model and proclaim the Christian faith in our generation in a way that is both intelligible and compelling to our neighbors. The main challenges to having this sort of encounter have been the same over the centuries. One is spiritual pride. Jonathan Edwards reflected on how revivals were often undermined by human pride, which can manifest itself in unnecessary disunity, fractiousness, and tribalism among Christians. Another abiding challenge is syncretism, when believers mix their faith with the idols of the culture, as in the book of Judges. For example, Judges 2 verses 11 to 15. While we may not be tempted toward literal polytheism, Christians in the West today certainly have to resist the lure of cultural idols, especially those that promise political power or social relevance. Along with commonalities, each age has its own unique challenges. Today, churches in Western society have to deal with something they have never faced before, a culture increasingly hostile to their faith that is not merely non-Christian such as in China, India, and Middle Eastern countries, but post-Christian. What are the biggest obstacles we are facing in our cultural moment? For centuries, Christians have been able to assume that everyone around them believed in a sacred order, a transcendent supernatural dimension of reality that was the ground of all moral absolutes and that promised life after death. All cultures believed in a standard of right and wrong to which human beings were obligated to conform regardless of their feelings. They therefore also believed in objective guilt and sin, and that the problems of human life are solved when we connect to that sacred order rather than simply living for ourselves. Of course, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, and animists disagreed even violently over what that sacred order was, and they rejected the Christian account of it. But everyone agreed that it existed and that we needed to find a way to touch it. Late modern culture is the first culture based on a rejection of a sacred order. In the name of individual freedom, today's society declares that there are no transcendent realities to which we must conform. Rather, we choose our own values and we create our own meaning in life. Academic, artistic, and entertainment institutions teach that the only sacred depths are the ones found within us. Indeed, if there's a moral absolute in today's culture... It is that we must not say that there are moral absolutes, let alone a sacred order with which all people must align. Such statements are said to oppress people and limit their freedom. Past evangelistic strategies assumed that nearly everyone held this shared set of beliefs about a sacred order, that there was a God, an afterlife, a standard of moral truth, and a sense of sin. We might call these the religious dots that evangelists could assume in their hearers. Evangelism, then, was simply connecting the dots, the dots that listeners already possessed in order to prove the truth of the gospel. Today's culture believes that the thing we need salvation from is the idea that we need salvation. How, then, do you evangelize people who lack any sense of sin or transcendence, or who lack the traditional basic religious infrastructure, such as belief in a supreme being, or the afterlife. The church in the West has not faced this situation before. In the United States, the average person now spends two and a half hours a day on social media. In 2015, the average 12th grader was online for four hours a day. Younger people spend much more time and are more profoundly shaped by the internet. In Reclaiming Conversation, Sherry Turkle of MIT says that increased time on social media correlates with a measurable loss of empathy the ability to put ourselves in someone else's shoes. More and more, what is outside seems less real than what is inside one's head and feelings. That means technology conveys the narratives and beliefs of secular modernity regarding identity, freedom, happiness, and relativism in an immersive way far beyond what TV, radio, or movies could ever do. And technology doesn't merely give us different beliefs. It also changes the very way we form them. Beliefs become very thin, chosen only if they fit how we want to see ourselves and easily discarded when they do not. The challenges of formation in such a digital culture are considerable. Our traditional models of biblical and spiritual formation, through just a few hours of public worship time in a community group, are insufficient for countering the impact of 24-7 digital technology throughout the week. Our models of theological formation give us a firm grasp of biblical doctrine. Which is indispensable, but they fail to deconstruct the culture's beliefs and provide better Christian answers to the questions of the late modern human heart. Across the West and elsewhere, we are experiencing increasing amounts of political polarization. There is enormous dissatisfaction with the political establishment, and people are willing to vote for candidates, both right and left, who would have been considered extreme just 10 years ago. This is one of the bitter fruits of the secular project the first effort in history to build cohesive societies without a common set of shared moral and religious values. James Eglinton describes the two poles of our fragmented culture in an article for Christianity Today entitled Populism versus Progressivism. Who knows best? He identifies the emergence of two rival visions of the world. One attracts those receptive to the restoration of national greatness, the importance of groups over individuals, and the conservation of the past. The other pulls on those receptive to a starkly individualistic future, unhitched from the obligations of the past, and bound instead to the notion of progress. Crucially, each of these cultural forces also repels those who prove unreceptive to it. For this reason, our cultural commentators now talk of two Americas, two Brazils, and two United Kingdoms. In each of these settings, populations migrate toward opposite polar extremities. One of these views makes an idol out of individual freedom, the other out of race and nation, blood and soil. Both are secular. The transcendent God is missing, and something created and earthly is deified. The great danger is churches getting caught up in this polarization and becoming mere tools of either a leftward or a rightward political coalition. In America, for example, the country is now seeing the development of both blue evangelicalism and red evangelicalism. The former talks about racial and economic justice, but is quieter about the biblical teaching on subjects such as sexuality, gender, and family. The latter condemns sexual immorality and secularism, but grows silent when its political allies fan the flames of racial resentment toward immigrants and minority communities. When the church, in the interest of acquiring political power— aligns too much with the current age's secular left or right, it is sapped of both spiritual power and credibility with non-Christians. We see the political captivity of the faithful. The solution cannot be some imaginary apolitical withdrawal, as if that were possible. Christians must learn to do something new, to engage politically yet critically, not capitulating to any reigning ideology, in order to be truly salt and light in society, rather than part of its decay. These three challenges must be tackled directly and deliberately. Christian leaders must dedicate time and talent to developing strategies that will overcome these barriers to a gospel movement in our generation. We are entering a new era in which, in many places in the West, there is not only no social benefit to being a Christian, but an actual social cost to espousing faith. Culture is becoming more actively hostile toward Christian beliefs and practices. Semi-biblical, generically religious beliefs in God, truth, sin, and the afterlife, those things we've called the religious dots, they are disappearing in more and more people, as culture produces people for whom Christianity is not only offensive, but incomprehensible. Therefore, we must find ways of evangelizing people who lack the religious dots and would never think of coming to church, and we must find ways of churching and forming people as Christians in the midst of a very different culture. To clarify, a missionary encounter is not a withdrawal from culture into communities with little connection to the rest of society, nor is it an effort to secure political power in order to impose Christian standards and beliefs on an unwilling populace, nor is it an effort to become so quote-unquote relevant that the church becomes completely adapted to and assimilated into the culture. Instead, a missionary encounter connects, unlike the strategies of withdrawal, yet confronts, unlike the strategies of assimilation, and therefore actually converts people, unlike all the strategies, including those of political domination. And while critiquing all the other strategies at a fundamental level, a church that is embarked on a missionary encounter does maintain its distinctiveness, a goal shared with the withdrawal approach. It does often affirm and always serve its neighbors, a goal shared with the assimilation approach. And it does call people to repent and change, a goal occasionally shared with a politically assertive approach. In many ways, we must look to the early church that had an effective missionary encounter with a very hostile culture. And yet, since our Western culture is post-Christian and the challenges it poses are unique, Our generation's missionary encounter will not look exactly like any missionary encounter that the church has ever had in the past.
2: Most people who have only a tourist's knowledge of the Netherlands think that it's completely secular and all that. Uh, but there's actually a quite strong Bible Belt area in the Netherlands, uh, running from the northeast to the southwest, and uh, you find quite a lot of towns and villages there where uh, the majority of the population is still not just a church member, but large minorities or even majorities are still church-going. Uh, They're Protestant and conservative Reformed usually, with a lot of free church evangelical types of churches orbiting around it. Yeah, I came from one of these places and I went to Amsterdam, in 2005 together with my family. This is Dr.
0: Stefan Paz, who holds the J. H. Bavink Chair for Missiology and Intercultural Theology at Free University of Amsterdam. He has written extensively on mission and evangelism in Europe, and his newest book, Pilgrims and Priests, is a gem. In the first half or so of the book, he describes the diversity of Christian postures toward cultural engagement. In the second half, he proposes an alternative, what he calls a missional spirituality, which draws heavily on the exilic literature of the Old Testament and on First Peter from the New. I asked Stefan to describe the experience of moving from the Bible Belt to one of Europe's most secular cities.
2: Yeah, so uh, one of the most important uh, differences, is not is, is um, a social one. I mean, mentally or rationally, you already you know, of course, that there are non-Christians. And in the place where I lived, it was not. I mean, it was not that there were no non-Christians. Our neighbours were non Christians, good friends of ours, but not church-going. But still, and in this Bible Belt society, it was a normal thing to be a Christian, and that is something. Uh, what I learned, I think, when when I moved to Amsterdam, that I am a social being as well. I'm not just a rational being. I can deal with all sorts of arguments, but when you live somewhere, when virtually no one uh, is interested in what you believe, does not even take the effort to to refute it or to criticize it, um, that does something with, with you. It shows that I think all our arguments, all our thinking are also embedded in who we are, who we belong to. Living in a, in a deeply secularized culture also um, helps you to refocus on what's really important in your faith. For example, uh, back there, most of my friends were members of the same church. And just to give you a picture, uh, I was a member of a Christian Reformed church there, there was one other Christian Reformed Church in the same place, both very big churches, more than a thousand members, both of them. Once per year they had what the Dutch call a pulpit change, that the pastor of one church could preach in the other church and vice versa. And the reason that they didn't do that more was because of subtle differences in theology and, 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 and culture and all that. Anyway, members of the same church. In Amsterdam, of course, that's not that's not an issue at all. That's luxury. I mean, that's all Bible Belt stuff. So here you are already very happy if you meet a Christian, whether it's Roman Catholic or Pentecostal or whatever. Someone who believes in Jesus is already a big blessing. I'm curious how you would maybe
0: summarize or diagnose the spiritual climate of maybe the West, secular West generally, but I'm curious also in your more specific context of Northwest Europe.
2: Well, all throat scraping aside, I would say it's a Christian culture, a post-Christian culture in the sense of Christians, uh, I mean, confessing Christians and and, and church-going Christians uh, meet in their Western culture a lot of intuitions and practices that have at some point broken off from Christianity and have radicalized, but are still recognizably Christian in some way. Mm. Uh, For example, take uh, uh, the response of the Dutch government against the COVID pandemic. What we saw was a, a great shared concern about the weak and those who... Uh, were very vulnerable to the disease. So all the free people and the strong people uh, were, well, were restricted in their freedom, uh, basically because of of the people who could not really take care of of themselves. That's not a pagan impulse. That's not what the Romans did. That's something that we learned on the way in the past two millennia, millennia, something like that, probably because of um, uh, centuries of preaching and and, and of gospel um, sharing. So there is a sociological story, of course, of decline, to an extent, at least. Because what is this decline? I mean, decline in numbers, at least. We should take that seriously. Mm -hmm. But I'm not buying into the story that our culture now is darker than it used to be or something like that, partly because I believe and that is a a perspective that is relatively underexplored in missiology, namely that the secular culture is also a post-Christian culture, It's produced to some extent by Christianity. Our, our modern, late modern secular culture couldn't have been there without Christianity, and like I said, I, I learned that from, from from for example Charles Taylor, who says in his essay on Catholic modernity, he says that we, like I said, we dealing in in our late modern culture, we're dealing with intuitions and practices that have broken off from Christianity and radicalized because they've come outside of Christianity. So they've radicalized, which is not always a good thing, but still they're still recognizably Christian. So that, that makes that, that that is what I think renders. Uh, the missionary task in the West is so complex, we're not just dealing with a pre-Christian culture or a pagan culture um, and not just a rebellious culture, a prodigal culture, uh, there is really a new thing there, we, we're still trying to feel our way around it and often uh, it's a bit embarrassing to see that in this culture some aspects of the gospel seem to have been understood better than by many people in, in, inside the church.
0: The new challenge of mission and post-Christian cultures requires a new approach to cultural engagement. Stefan makes an interesting and probably controversial claim in his book Pilgrims and Priests that despite all their differences in theological nuance, most Protestant approaches to cultural engagement ultimately share
2: one fundamental assumption. So one of the big questions in mission, in the West, wherever, is of course, what's the purpose of it? I mean, what, do, what in the end do we have, want to achieve when it's mission completed and all that kind of questions? My general idea is that uh, often implicit in all sorts of missionary ideas and missionary ecclesiologies is is, uh, the idea of Christendom. That mission somehow, in some way, tries to achieve a Christian society. uh, Either by individual conversions and just adding them up until everyone is converted, church growth, or by uh, transformation ideals or or Christian culture ideals and all that. I, I sometimes Push that my friends who in that direction said, so, well, but what when, when will this be finished? This transformation? What do we want to achieve? And then in some way or another question pops up. In place of transformation, Stefan prefers different
0: language to describe the goal of a missionary encounter.
2: Whenever something transforms, it can always fall back. That's why I like to use the, the, the language of signs. Um, so what, what we're doing in mission is build signs for the kingdom. And sometimes signs are temporary. Some, sometimes they're not very impressive, like, uh, uh, like a sand castle on a beach. Um, it's beautiful, and you have a lot of fun when you're doing it. And uh, in one way or another, it also may, may present some comfort and blessing and some, something genuine. But it's not always there to last. In a mission, especially in the secular West, you'll meet a lot of those kind of missionary initiatives. They have some results, if I can use the word. There are really, some things are really happening. I mean, it's not without results, but often these results are very precarious, temporary, uh, disappointing sometimes, at least disappointing from the perspective of ground culture change and all that. A question most of us
0: in ministry are inclined to ask is, will it work? But instead of the language of transformation, Stefan prefers the language of signs. And in place of outcomes or impact, he prefers to talk about the inherent good of the work itself, regardless of the return on investment.
2: This brings him to worship. For me, that's about doxology, glorifying God. That's a very reformed motive, which has, for me, always been very helpful and very liberating. If, If Christians worship God, if they doxologize, so to speak, what they say is basically nothing more or less than this. There is one who is just good. He's not good for anything. He's just good, period. Hmm. And and so I think that's the same is true for everything that belongs to God or that sort of reflects his being. Uh, everything that witnesses about him, there is goodness in it without being subjected to all sorts of uh, p- purposes that we have thought of like conquering, hmm. building up institutions or. All, all, all that so, so the language of mission is very important there. I mean when, when I was writing this particular chapter and, and thinking about the spirituality of all this two Bible texts were very important to me the one is in Luke, Luke chapter 15 there's one there's joy in heaven about one sinner who converts and then the other one is in Galatians I think chapter 6 or 5 uh, never grow weary in doing good now I was saying whatever if, you, if, you, if you're evangelizing or, or doing food banks or, or working for justice I can guarantee you one thing, if you evangelize and, and have church growth ideas in the back of your mind in the West, uh, you can't be happy about one. I mean, heaven resounds with joy about that, but you can't. And, and, and the same is true for food banks and justice. You will grow weary very, very soon if you want to transform the world by it.
0: Stefan's move to Amsterdam prompted something like a crisis of faith but it also sparked the beginning of a deeper awareness of who God is and the beginning of a spirituality of exile.
2: When I went to Amsterdam, I felt abandoned, spiritually. I, I couldn't find God anymore, until I, rec- until I realized that, that, that God, for me, was part had, had been part of a culture. He was really there, but to an extent, God was so interwoven with, with the whole social dynamic of the Bible Belt place and institutions, and, and, and when I was uprooted and the institutional presence of Christianity was very weak, uh, it was difficult for me to find God. So what I, what I learned in the city, and I think that was a, a deep spiritual awareness, uh, partly by praying, partly by studying, especially the book of Daniel, was um, that, and I think I even listened to, to one of Tim's sermons about Daniel, where he said the exile the, the, the people carried off into exile was something that God had done um, it was not just Nebuchadnezzar or the, the Babylonians but I learned from 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 the Bible the, 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 the books of exile second Isaiah for example it's not just that there is still a presence of God in exile No, it's, it's even more uh, Israel discovers that God is much greater than they ever, had ever thought hmm. if God is the God of your fathers and of institutions to an extent, that can produce very strong religion and very strong identities. To an extent, it's true, and I'm not saying that that is wrong in itself. But your God is often not 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 bigger, not greater than that particular environment. So uh, outside, it's just darkness, or enemy culture, or the persecutors, or whatever those people who want gay marriage and all that. Um, and and then um, uh, when 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 you start living in exile you lose a lot of those certainties perhaps but um, what you learn is that God is much greater than you thought he is the God at the ends of the earth really you can know that mentally but to really discover it and really spiritually experience it it might be that you first must be brought in a situation of weakness and foolishness like the Apostle Paul
0: it's a fundamentally different thing to know from Jerusalem that God is uh, God in Babylon as well, and uh, but it's very different to find Him in Babylon, Isn't right? It? Yeah. and to yeah. to feel Him at work there, right? Um, it struck me as I was reading through. You make the claim that our contemporary situation is is probably more similar to uh, the situation that makes up a lot of the biblical context of exile and uh, occupation and diaspora. Um, Our situation is more similar to that than it is to our parents, grandparents situation of Christendom.
2: Yeah, That's what I think. I was set on this track by um, two very conservative reform pastors in the Netherlands who wrote uh, each separately, wrote a book on judgment. They say secularization is a judgment of God. Uh, Modern Christians, they they claimed, uh, see secularization as a sort of problem to be solved but it's a crisis, crisis in the original sense of the word, a judgment. So we need to to pray, to repent and all that. Now I thought, um, this rings a bell. I'm an Old Testament scholar. So I was thinking, ah, this sounds very much like Jeremiah or the Book of Kings. Uh, So the reflections on the exile. Yes, God has punished us for our sins in the past, which is, uh, I think, a good biblical sense-making narrative. I mean, there's truth in that. And I think uh, the Western Church has a lot to repent for, looking back. I was also thinking, thinking about the exilic traditions, there was more to it. And, that was, and it was not just a, a biblical theological observation, it was also something pastorally. I mean, when I did lectures or, or speaking or preaching in several com- uh, churches in the country, what I found was when I got questions afterward, let's say from older people who had seen their children leave the church uh, and were very, very sad about that. I thought, I, I don't really help these people if I tell them that God is punishing them it's important to tell that, for example, to self-confident establishments uh, or or perhaps church leaders or whatever who who are in denial, but these poor people, they need comfort, they need hope, they don't need an extra slap in the face. I was thinking, of uh, so from these both perspectives, I I started to look again at uh, these traditions, and like you said already, what you find in the Bible is not just um, that's a strong tradition, certainly. Uh, the, the reflections on, well, we have sinned or our ancestors have sinned and we are punished now, but also uh, people who really do not know what, what they had done wrong. Take Psalm 74, for example, and there are other Psalms as well, where they say, God, you have abandoned us. What have we done? We've always served you, and now this. Think of Lamentations, which is even rebellious in a sense. Uh, Lamentations chapter two or three, which make this, this parody of Psalm 23. You are not just you're not a good shepherd, Lord. When will you do something? Angry voices or, or, or very hurt voices are also heard, and then then there is, of course, like I said, that, uh, the second Isaiah with the great perspectives, an exilic prophet who says, But in exile, we rediscover who God really is. He is not just the God of our fathers, he's the God of the world, he's the God of Babylon. All these things together. The rediscovery of, of who God is, the new horizons of faith, I think are, for me, ingredients of the exilic experience. And today you see exactly the same among Christians, I think. In my book, Pilgrims and Priests, uh, the fourth chapter, when I talk about exile, um, actually my, my question was, in the back of my mind, what has God to do with all this? I mean, how is God active in secularization of our culture? Mm-hmm. Which is a daring question to an extent, because most Christians would immediately say, well, of course, he has nothing to do with that. He's against it, but if if that is true, if God is not active somehow, not present somehow in the secularization of our culture, then um, I think we're we're really in dire straits because then uh, it would mean that um, God has left us, has abandoned us.
0: It's interesting to use the language of exile because we have not been geographically removed from the places that we grew up uh, as I was reading that section. I kept thinking of, of uh, Gregor Samsa, the, in uh, the, the metamorphosis Kafka's story where he goes to sleep one day at home and he wakes up and he's been transformed into something vile, you know, and I think that's the experience. I think that a lot of, uh, f- whether it's fearful or nostalgic, uh, evangelicals feel is that we woke up as strangers and. You know vermin in our own in our own homes, and um, yeah, how do we what what do we do now, right? Um, and so I wonder if the the those callings of pilgrim and priest can give us a way
2: to engage that proactively. In the Bible, when you are a stranger like Joseph or or Daniel or Queen Esther, it's not necessarily that you're discriminated against or persecuted all the time. You can I mean you can become a minister or a queen or a viceroy. I mean um, you can have quite a good career uh, but it's very vulnerable it's very fragile they can take it away from you any, anytime so you're depending on the goodwill of others you no longer run the show as christians and i'm saying that's not necessarily a bad thing uh, so what does it mean to have a faithful missionary presence as a minority and that's where the priest metaphor comes in i'm building here on the first uh, letter of peter in the new testament where he says to his churches that you are strangers and you are a priesthood and I think of the priesthood is an excellent metaphor to explore when you think about a minority mission. Priests are a minority by definition. They're called out of the people or out of the world to represent the people for God, represent God before the people. So there's a, there's a sort of mediating function there. What I said, if, if you look in the Old Testament, what do priests do when they represent the people before God? They worship, very important task. So bring all of life before God. The sad things, the good things, the anger, the joy, all that. Uh, and doing it out of your relationships with the neighborhood and with your with your friends and your colleagues. Listen to them, listen to, to their stories and, and just ask them, Can I pray for you? Can I thank for you? And and do you mind if I would pray for you in church? And if we would pray together for you in church. Could you you could join us and tell your story yourself? If you don't, we'll do it for you. But and of course, uh, what priests also do is not just worshipping, uh, but they also come to God to to sacrifice. So to, if you translate it for today, I would say to bring the best of your culture before God. And then the other way around, I mean, representing God before the people What is teaching. The priests teach the Torah in the, in the Old Testament and, and they bless. There's wonderful things to explore what it means in the practice of mission to, to teach people, to bless people. It helps me when I think about this mediating function of the priesthood. I'm thinking of those things, those whole network of activities that are representative somehow and are media and connecting people to God and, and God to people through uh, those group of Christ- groups of Christians that are called to be priests. To me, that's a hopeful and also identity giving metaphor uh, as a Christian. Uh, what I can say when I, for example, teach people or, or do lectures in churches. Where you often meet people are like the only christian in their family or in the street well when i share church growth ideals or transforming society ideals these people are just looking at me and that you don't understand one word of where i'm where i'm at my situation yeah but when they are a bit hopeless or a bit well lost lost courage or whatever you call it um when i say well you're not just a single person who happens to be a christian you're not just the one fool in the family you're a priest and you're a priest for them as well. Hmm.
0: You've already given some hopeful perspective, but I wonder if you have a final word of encouragement that you, to speak to that anxiety that many feel.
2: When they look at statistics or think, well, if we all share forces, if we join, uh, then we can do great things and all that. I'm not optimistic in that sense. I mean, not pessimistic either, but we'll, we'll just see. I'm hopeful. Leslie Newbigin, once in his old age, was asked, uh, do you have any optimistic ideas about uh, the future of the West? And he says, well, I'm hopeful that Christ has risen. Hmm. can sound like a cliche, but in the end, that's the only answer I can give as a question. I'm very hopeful, extremely hopeful, actually, because Christ has risen. What I can do here and now is doing my work as a priest and um, being hopeful that God will bless it and, and will use it and will give some eternity to it.
0: The metaphors of pilgrims and priests are rich for shaping how we imagine a missionary encounter with Western culture. But none of us interacts with Western culture in the abstract. We all live somewhere in time and space, and that somewhere has a particular history and particular sensibilities and particular challenges and opportunities. I spoke with Iotis Kantartsis, pastor of the First Greek Evangelical Church, a historic Presbyterian church in the center of Athens about the unique cultural context of his city and the importance of speaking the various cultural languages of your neighbors.
3: You know, when I first started reading Tim Keller's articles way back, I was really fascinated by this whole idea of contextualization. Now, the temptation is always to copy, okay? So here I am in the center of Athens trying to mimic Tim Keller, in a way, talking about uh, postmodernism and about the secularism and, 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 and all of that. And uh, then, you know, there is this ki- moment of epiphany, another fancy Greek word, uh, that uh, you say, What am I doing now? <laughs> I mean, what is the principle uh, behind it? That you need to study your context and try to, to really see the particular challenges of your context and then try to address it. And and, and I think that is what, uh, you know, what is the temptation there? That we all want the recipe. Uh, and, and okay, okay, that worked, and I'll take the recipe, and I'll just do it. But the recipe is to make up your own recipe. Uh, <laughs> and that is very difficult. Right. You pastor in Athens.
0: Tell us about the... Uh, kind of a quick overview of the context
3: uh, that you minister in in Athens. Greece is a Greek Orthodox country in the southeast part part of Europe. So let me just uh, say a few things about Europe uh, because when we say Europe I mean people think that it's, it's like a big country. It It is and it is not. So you can cut it uh, vertically and horizontally and so you have northern and southern Europe. So there are Economic and other factors that differentiate the two. And then you have the Western and the Eastern, if you take the vertical line. Uh, so we are like Southeast. What does it mean to be in the Southeast of Europe? Uh, it means that uh, we are in between. We are a country in transitions, as several countries in that area. Uh, there, there is an emblem in a flag that used to be in Byzantium, and you have a a two-headed eagle. You know, it's an eagle with two heads. And interestingly enough, in some ways, that uh, epitomizes what is Greece. It's, It's a country, and it's a culture that looks both ways. So you look east and west at the same time. Now, let me talk a little bit about the religious landscape. As I said, it's Greek Orthodox. Uh, uh, evangelical Protestants in Greece and in most countries in the Southern Balkans uh, uh, are not more than 0.2, 0.3 uh, percent. The only exception in the Balkans would be Bulgaria, which uh, has a, la- a larger percentage. Uh, again, is 2 percent, not something really, you know, great. Uh, So uh, you have this aspect then in our context, which is being a minority. So it's interesting to, to, you know, think about, okay, what does it mean to be a religious minority uh, in Greece? Uh, The best way to understand who are we in the eyes of a typical Greek Orthodox person is, okay, think in your context, uh, a religious group which is 0.3. You know, typically these are really weird people. If your uh, kids join them, you will be really worried. Okay. Who are these people? I want to to check them out. And, you know, so uh, we have a young uh, student uh, who started coming to our church. And interestingly enough, for the first couple of months, her mother was coming with her. She's a good mother. Because, I mean, I I don't blame here because, you know, okay who are these people? okay (laughs) so this is who are we? So uh, and and part of this suspicion is that this is an imported cult, that this is an American cult. And, you know, and and I think that in our context and that is true not only in the East, but I would say also in Italy, Spain, Portugal, you know, history and tradition is very important in, in our places. Uh, in the United States, it doesn't matter so much because you don't have that, uh, you know. But you know, like from my office, I can see the Parthenon actually. So history, I mean, uh, history in our context in Greece, at least, is a very powerful argument. So it, it is not a, a rational argument, but if you say, you know, so, you know, let's go back and see that, you know, history plays a very significant role. So proving that you're you are part of the of the Catholic Church. Uh, I think that is a very important thing—a a strategy.
0: What well, was uh, right there in Athens in Acts seventeen that Paul had to prove that he was not introducing a foreign god to uh, Athenian culture, right? That <laughs> yes. so there's there's maybe a very long history of suspicion of. Uh, imported religion in
3: your part of the world. <laughs> that, that, You're right. Uh, I, I many times think that we need, we need to have the copyright of that passage yeah. uh, being <laughs> underneath the Mars Hill, but anyway, you are allowed to use it, you know?
0: In Athens, a city Yotis calls the East of the West, history and pedigree are important apologetic tools, which is less the case in places like the United States. But there's another important contextual issue in Athens, the culture is not post-Christian generically, it's specifically and increasingly post-Orthodox. That means a person's relationship to religion takes on very different contours here.
3: Religion in Greece is not simply uh, like a personal choice or something that you do in order to fulfill your spiritual quest. Religion is part of your national heritage and identity. It's something that you are born into. Uh, being greek orthodox means that as you when you are get if you are greek and you are born in a greek family and you're baptized in the church you're already greek orthodox you know being orthodox may not mean anything at all spiritually but still is part of their identity and, and there is this interesting dynamic there, which I think is very important for us to keep in mind, because and that is a more general observation, if I may, about secularization, because many times we, even with Europe, we say, okay, Europe is secularized, which means, okay, religion doesn't matter. We need to be more careful about that. Because you may have totally secular people uh, in life, but that does not mean necessarily that religion doesn't matter at all, or faith. Grace uh, Davy, who is a a British sociologist, she talks, uh, she brings this idea about vicarious religiosity, which means in our context in Greece, okay, I don't go to church, I don't care any, you know, about religion, but uh, it is important for me that there is a church operating, that there are monks in the monasteries, uh, praying and all of that. So I, I think that uh, makes, again, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a matter of complexity that we always need to, to be aware of, even when we talk about secularization. If someone's identity is connected with uh, a sort of latent
0: religiosity and with ethnic identity and with a national identity, etc., if there are kind of rituals and rhythms that are native to them, you know, how how do you go from there in your context to uh, the gospel of Jesus? How do you walk people to
3: Jesus from where they are in your context in Athens? Uh, That's a great question. And I would say that, you know, there's not one one answer. I have mentioned uh, uh, Grace Davy, and uh, another thing that she, you know, she was a proponent, uh, and I think she originated the idea that you have, she argues that in the West, the secular West, you have the phenomenon of uh, believing without belonging. So you you have people who may, who distrust, uh, uh, you know, uh, religion and, and the church and whatnot, but that does not mean institutional religion, but you know, not necessarily spiritual matters and they believe, so believe without belonging. Now, uh, using this uh, uh, idea, uh, I think it's a useful tool to think through that. So uh, what I would call the cultural Christianity or the nominal Christianity, at least, you know, in, in, in our case, the, the national uh, identity Christianity, you have a lot of people who, who belong without believing. You know, they may, if you ask them, you know, what, what you are, they may say, I'm Greek Orthodox or whatnot. So they, they belong, but they don't necessarily believe in whatever way we may describe believing. Now, I think this is not, you know, definitely, we're not satisfied with that, you know, so we're not, we don't want to let them there. Now, I, I think that perhaps there may be a variation of that. And so we say, okay, uh, let's talk about belonging before uh, uh, believing or belonging as a step to believing. Now, as Protestants, we have, uh, and I think this is a heritage of the several awakenings, and, and this, uh, you know, George Whitfield, and, you know, that evangelism is, you know, authentic evangelism happens outside the church. We inherited this idea that evangelism is something that needs to happen out there, like in the streets, outside. And then you believe out there, and after you believe, then you join a church. There is definitely believing before belonging. So that is, you know, a clear-cut distinction. I would say that I would be more open, let's say, to the idea, let people belong uh, before uh, believing. Let people belong. Let people come. Let people even participate in the gestures without necessarily... I mean, we had this very difficult decision, I remember, several years ago as Board of Elders, whether we should allow this gentleman to take part into the communion a guy who is a self-proclaimed atheist so but he comes every Sunday at church uh, and he sings the songs he listens to the sermon he even cries sometimes during the sermon and he wants to take part of the communion after you explain what this thing is so we have this difficult decision. What do we do? I mean, in, in a way, you may say, okay, let's do some shock treatment and say, you know what? You know, you, you, you are close but not in. That's why you need to think about that. You need to make a decision, okay? So that is one way. And it, it may be true. The other is let him, let him do it. Let him belong. Uh, and let's see how that, you know, uh, works, in his life, how the Holy Spirit will work.
0: You're probably wondering what Jotis and his leadership team decided to do in this case. Well, he didn't tell me. But he did tell me about another sort of language he thinks the church should become fluent in to be successful in a missionary encounter in Athens.
3: We need to rediscover the language of gestures in our Protestant tradition because we tend to be very cerebral. Uh, So uh, let me again give a practical example. One of the good things about COVID, we're not allowed to sing, so we don't sing. We have someone who sings a song like a soul or something, but that's it. So we rediscovered the sacramental aspect of worship, because in most evangelical churches, You know, what used to be, like if you read the historic liturgies by Luther, by Calvin, there is the liturgy of the word, and then there is the liturgy of the sacrament or of the table. You know, these two main things. So now we don't have, we cannot sing. What do you do? We cannot simply stand up and, you know, read the scriptures and preach. This is, you know, so we said, let's do the Lord's Supper every Sunday. Now we do it every Sunday. The way we were doing the Lord's Supper, it was like an addendum at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, after you had a full service, like uh, people were tired, okay, now let's do the supper as well. Now it's like half an hour, it's, it's literally following the tradition of our forefathers, the liturgy of the word, and then there is the liturgy of the, of the table. This is another language that we also need to learn in order to engage. Uh, uh, people. Uh, Another aspect, if I may add, when we talk about, uh, you know, uh, rituals and and gestures uh, is, again, that we need to avoid the platonic temptation to undermine the body. Okay, so we are embodied beings So the body matters, and it should matter in our worship. Uh, At at least uh, for us. I mean, uh, uh, having a conversation. I mean, it's very interesting uh, discussing with a very good friend of mine who is a Greek Orthodox, uh, very open-minded. I, you know, many times I heard him uh, complain uh, about his church that is lacking catechism, catechesis. So which is condent, which we do very well. Uh, but I remember once he said, "You know what? What I'm missing when I come to your services, uh, this embodied presence. You know that. You know the, that the body, in a way, participates in the whole worship experience. And I think I- I'm not saying that this is the answer to all the problems, obviously. But I'm saying that this is something that we need to, to as I said, is a language that we need to learn." The idea
0: of believing before belonging comes up in other conversations in this series, so stay tuned for more on that. But right now, it draws together some themes in this episode. For one, how do we share the gospel with people for whom, as Tim Keller put it, Christianity is not only offensive, but incomprehensible? What is one of the signs of the kingdom, to use Stephen Pass's phrase, that points non-Christian people toward Jesus? Hiotta suggests that one of our most powerful signs is a compelling community that people want to belong to.
3: I was really uh, struck when I realized, as I was reading uh, works of ecclesiastical uh, writers, fathers, church fathers of the first centuries, interestingly enough, the main thrust of their apology had to do with the way of life of Christians. What in their apologetic work, they're not defending ideas, but they're explaining uh, why we do this. That's why I think I'm really convinced that church planting is very important as a tool because people need to have the opportunity and belonging before people need to join a community where they can see a different lifestyle, where which will, you know, uh, uh, be so to say, a good apology. Of the gospel, uh, and 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 then you know lead them to decisions or you know change of life and and whatnot, and even theologically, if you think about that, I always uh, you know think about uh, this uh, scripture passage in Second Corinthians where it says that if someone is in Christ, he's a new creation; uh, the old has gone, the you know, and and. We may talk about that, we may, uh, you know, proclaim it, but at the end of the day, someone may ask, okay, what what should I believe uh, about a new creation? What should I believe about the restoration of all in Jesus Christ? What should I believe? I think that the most profound argument would be, come with me at church to see uh, this new creation pattern in our lives. This is what new creation in a miniature uh, means. So this is... Uh, even theologically speaking, it's it's a powerful argument. So these are things that I think we need to take into consideration when we think about our approach to, to evangelism in the eastern part of the West.
0: That's all for today, but there's so much more to come. Next week, we're back to talk about a Christian high theory that critiques Western culture's dominant narratives. And we talk about how to do that, even while the broader culture is offering critiques of the church's own errors and blind spots. So subscribe today to make sure you don't miss anything. And I know you'll want to hear more from our excellent guests. You can find print versions of our full interviews at RedeemerCityToCity.com resources, along with links to books and other resources mentioned in this episode. How to Reach the West Again is a production of Redeemer City to City. It is written and hosted by Brandon O'Brien. Just about everything else is done by City to City's resident Swiss Army knife, Braden Gregg. Special thanks to Roosevelt Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona, for the generous use of their studio space. To learn more about Redeemer City to City, visit us online at RedeemerCityToCity.com.